Welcome to the PCTR Podcast. I'm Robbie Itterberg, Senior Pastor. I want to thank you for listening today. We hope that you hear from God and that this podcast encourages you in your faith journey. You can connect with us on social at facebook.com slash PCTRNJ or our Instagram handle PCTRNJ. Or you can find more information or resources at PCTR.org. Have a great day. Peace. Well, this morning, we are here gathered for the last message in the sermon series that we've been in through for a number of weeks, the sermon series called Renewed Life After Disaster. And this series has been a journey through the entire book of Ezra. But even more than that, it's been a journey with the people of God at a period in history where they were coming out of a disaster, out of exile and captivity in Babylon, and they were moving into life renewed back in Jerusalem and Judah, back to life that was thriving and vibrant. And last week, we were invited to seek God together particularly in a time of fasting and prayer over the next 30 days, to fast three days a week, one meal a day, to intentionally pursue God for individual renewal, for our corporate renewal as a church as we think about life beyond this pandemic we've been living in, and renewal for our community well beyond. And so if you'd like to participate in that, you're still welcome to. If you want, you can email me, Robbie, R-O-B-B-I-E, at ctr.org, and I can send you some helpful guidelines and some practical thoughts about how to engage in fasting. Because all of this and these practices, these habits are all about seeking the thing that God wants to do in our lives, the thing that only God can do to bring the renewal that's on the other side of disaster. And it's not just for this time of pandemic, it's any time that disaster comes into our lives. And so today we're going to be looking and talking about leadership and about how leadership leads us or can lead us into renewal. And so we're going to jump into Ezra chapter 9 and we're going to read chapter 9 and the first verse of chapter 10. And if you want, you can follow along on the screen or in the words that are provided. Uh, But listen as we hear God's word speaking to us this morning. After these things had been done, the leaders came to me, that is Ezra, and said, The people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices, like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptianites, and Amorites. They they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak pulled hair from my head and beard and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles. And I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. Then at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my self-abasement with my tunic and cloak torn and fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord my God and prayed. I am too ashamed and disgraced, my God, to lift up my face to you. Because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. From the days of our ancestors until now, our guilt has been great. Because of our sins, we and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword and captivity, to pillage and humiliation at the hand of foreign kings as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant. 
and giving us a firm place in his sanctuary. And so our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief in our bondage. Though we are slaves, our God has not forsaken us in our bondage. He has shown us kindness in the sight of the kings of Persia. He has granted us new life to rebuild the house of our God and repair its ruins. And he has given us a wall of protection in Judah and Jerusalem. But now, our God, what can we say after this? For we have forsaken commands you gave through your servants, the prophets, when you said, the land you are entering to possess is a land polluted by the corruption of its peoples. By their detestable practices, they have filled it with their impurity from one end to the other. Therefore, do not give your daughters in marriage to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them at any time that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it to your children as an everlasting inheritance. What has happened to us is a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt. And yet, our God, you have punished us less than our sins deserved and have given us a remnant like this. Shall we then break your commands again and intermarry with the peoples who commit such detestable practices? Would you not be angry enough with us to destroy us, leaving us no remnant or survivor? Lord, the God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left this day as a remnant. Here we are before you in our guilt, though because of it, none of us can stand in your presence. While Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites, men, women, and children, gathered around him. They too wept bitterly. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And let's pray as we move further into God's word together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this unique and wonderful opportunity to gather. We thank you that your word speaks into our lives at all times, in all seasons, in all circumstances. And so this morning, will you give us the gift of your spirit leading our thoughts, leading the meditations of our hearts, and ultimately leading and shaping us from the inside out that we would be renewed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So last week, we heard how Ezra had arrived back in Jerusalem. He had come some many years later after the first exiles had returned. And here now, four and a half months after Ezra has returned, some of the local leaders come to him because there's a problem. Particularly, there's a problem that the people who have been living there for some time have intermarried with some of the foreign people, some of those in the neighboring lands. They've taken some of the daughters as, as wives for them and for their sons. And we may read this in our kind of modern lens and go, so what? What's the big deal? Why does it matter so much? And I think on one hand, it's simply because God had commanded them. As a matter of fact, Ezra acknowledged it very clearly that God had told them when they were entering the promised land many, many, many hundreds of years earlier with Moses, Moses had told them, and when you go in, don't, don't marry any of the people from the tribes and the people living in the land. And so it was a simple command, and we all know that if mom or dad says it, it, it should be done. It wasn't ever the favorite response, still isn't. Well, because I said so. And yet it's still valid, isn't it? Particularly in the case of God. So God had said so. But why had he said so? See, it wasn't just because he enjoyed commanding them and controlling their life and telling them what they could and couldn't do and wanting to keep them from being happy. No, God, God knew that there was a, a, a deeper problem. And so he was not just commanding them, he was warning them. 
He was warning them that if they intermarried with these people who worshipped other gods, who worshipped these idols, then they too and their children would get drawn into that. They'd be pulled away from just their loyalty and love for God alone into split loyalty with all of these other gods. And so he was warning them. And it's exactly what ends up happening. And yet, we still probably wonder why is that such a big deal? I mean, the leaders in in Ezra's day clearly knew it was a big deal. They had come acknowledging the problem. They had come acknowledging that the problem was the detestable practices of the neighbors that that they were living with. And ultimately, they said it's because they're going to mingle the holy race. And, And what does that mean? Well, see, Israel was meant to be a light to the nations. And so by intermarrying with these other people, they were not going to be able to maintain that pure light. They were a holy race, a holy nation. Now, we often get really bent out of shape when it comes to this word holy because holy has often in our lives meant better than or people who think they're better than. But that's not what the word means. Literally, it means set apart, set aside for something else, something that's different. And so they were intended to be set aside, set apart as different. Particularly, they were different because they knew God. And they were supposed to make God known to these nations. This is what the light was. The light was going to be God as the nations came to know him through their lives. They were going to teach the world what his character was like. They were going to show them what it meant to worship and encounter him. And their lives were going to be something different that would inspire the nations, would call them to something higher, something better, something greater. And in fact, it did when they were living into it. There was a time under the reign of King Solomon where we're told the queen of Sheba had heard all about the achievements of the people of God, all about the wealth and all about the incredible wisdom that Solomon had, all of which was a gift that God had given the people. And so she was curious. What was this about? Could it possibly be true? So she came and she saw, and after she beheld everything that God had done with his people, heard the wisdom that God had given Solomon, she proclaims it's true. And says, praise be to the Lord your God, who has delighted you and placed you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord's eternal love for Israel, he has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. See, even she, a foreign queen, could see that something was different. And it was beautiful. And she knew that it was God who was behind the different life that they were living and the blessings that they had received. And it moved her toward God. This was what the people of God have always been about. And yet, even Solomon gets caught up marrying neighboring women, gets caught up in the worship of other gods and idols. It's actually the very next chapter after the story of the Queen of Sheba, and he's led astray, which really begins years and years after. Because of this, there's this off-again, on-again relationship with God between the people of God, where their faith for a while. They're unfaithful for a while. They're faithful. They're unfaithful. They're faithful. They're unfaithful. And it's back and it's forth and it's back and it's forth. And unfortunately, mostly it's unfaithful. And in our relationships, we understand how problematic that is. And God was incredibly patient with them as they were on again, off again, on again, off again, all the time warning them, saying, don't, come on, I've got something better for you. I want to love you. I want to care for you. I want to protect you. I want to be your God and have you be my people. And yet they continued to turn their back on him. And eventually God said, you know what, enough. And that's why he sent them into exile in the first place. 
That's why he allowed them to be taken captive and taken into Babylon. And so they should have known. They should have known better than marrying these women. And really, I think it shows us how easy it is to justify ourselves, isn't it? How to justify our unfaithfulness. You know, and to do whatever we want to do, when we want to do it, how we want to do it, because it feels good to us in the moment. I mean, it's really easy to justify abandoning our own kind of set of code of ethics and values, let alone the values and the code of ethics of a holy and perfect and loving God. And so these leaders in Ezra's day had justified their behavior, had justified doing whatever they wanted to do, but it wasn't just that. They had, by extension, brought the rest of the people into it. They had made it okay. See, they were supposed to, the priests, the Levites, the leaders, they were supposed to be the ones protecting this community. They were supposed to be the ones leading them on the path that God was laying out before them, and instead they were paving the way for unfaithfulness in whatever possible way they wanted and ultimately mingling the holy race. It brings us to the core of things. Leadership matters. In every walk of life, we know that. In our relationship with God, leadership matters. See, this this moment is 80 years after the first exiles had returned to Jerusalem. 80 years. Which means a whole lot of these people who are gathering around Ezra, they were actually born back in Jerusalem or Judah. They hadn't tasted captivity. They hadn't tasted exile. They hadn't tasted the reality of disaster in their life because of their unfaithfulness. And so how should they have known? Well, clearly it was because their parents and their grandparents and the leaders of the community, they were the ones supposed to teach the faith. They were the ones entrusted with passing on the warnings, the lessons to the next generations, and they had failed to do this. But it wasn't just the failure of the previous generation and the previous one before that. It's the cumulative failure of the people of God throughout all of history that brings Ezra to this place of total dejection. Leadership mattered, and they had failed. And yet, where they had failed, Ezra, his leadership and his response is swift and it's authentic. When this message comes to him, we're told that he tears his cloak, he pulls his hair from his own beard. Now, I just have to confess, I am not actually capable of growing a beard. Because when I try, it comes in as a few little wisps, and so those little wisps can become six, eight inches long, but nothing else will fill in. So it's really kind of a nasty thing. And so I don't really relate to that part of it, but I can imagine how painful that would be. I can imagine what ripping your own beard hair out is like. And so that's the angst that he's experiencing because of the collective sin of the people. He's tearing his cloak as a sign of his distress, ripping out his own hair from his beard in grief and in horror. And he falls on his hands and his knees and he prays to God. And he says, I am too ashamed and disgraced, my God, to lift my face to you. Because our sins... Our sins are higher than our heads and guilt has reached to the heavens. What an amazing thing for him to do as a leader. Did you see that? He's he's starting with I. I am too ashamed, too disgraced. He could have been claiming his own innocence because he wasn't a part of this. He had no party to it. And I think as Americans, that's our natural instinct is to say, well, I didn't do it. And so it's somebody else's problem, somebody else's fault. 
But for Ezra, this is his people. He is identifying with them in their sin. He is accepting that I am a part of this people, and so the guilt is mine by extension. Man, that really flies in the face of our individualistic culture. That God would hold to account a whole corporate group of people, his people. And Ezra is saying, yes, it is our guilt. It is my guilt. And I am taking it on myself, and God, I am too ashamed, and I need you. You've provided for us over these years. You've preserved a remnant, not because we were faithful and good in the past, but because you have been faithful and good to keep your promises that you had made to all of our ancestors and your promise that ultimately the blessing of all the families of all the nations would come through this people. And so it's your faithfulness, God, and your mercy alone that we can throw ourselves at the feet of. See, His influence we see matters too. His leadership matters. As the people gathered around and heard his confession, they too wept bitterly. As the leaders go, the people will go. And so when the leaders lead to faithlessness, so go the people. When the leader leads to faithfulness, so go the people. And so leadership matters. When you're called to leadership, your leadership matters. The rest of the story of Ezra, I just am going to acknowledge very briefly, is very challenging. And so if you've read the rest of chapter 10, it's hard. Because what happens is the people, in response to their clear sin, come up with an idea. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to divorce all of these women from, that were foreign, from the foreign nations, and we're going to send them away with any children that they've borne to us. And so we're, in this, they were going to purify their race, purify not just their race, but actually their religion, their religious faithfulness as the people of God, as the Jewish people. And man, this is hard. I just want to acknowledge it. I want to acknowledge that sometimes the scripture is hard. And sometimes it doesn't say what we want it to say. And sometimes we have to deal with that and accept that. Sometimes we have to wrestle through what does it mean and what's underneath it. And so I'm not going to be able to tease all of that out today, but I want to acknowledge a few things that I think are relevant to what we're talking about today. One is that this tells us so clearly that our sin affects everyone. See, we like to keep things individualized. We like to say, well, it's just my fault it's just, or it's not my fault, and so I'm either on or off the hook. But what this shows us is that our sin has collateral damage that these women and these children should not have been in this position in the first place. If they had been faithful in the first place, it wouldn't have become such a mess. And so now here they are choosing between two evils. Do they continue in, in these marriages and risk the unfaithfulness that has perpetuated itself for generation and generation and generation with the worship of foreign gods? Or do they choose divorce, which we're told very clearly in Malachi, the prophet says God hates divorce. And so it's really the two values. And so which do they pick? They're in an absolutely no-win situation, lose-lose situation, and it shouldn't have happened in the first place. Sin affects everyone, and there's collateral damage. It's not just about you or me. It's about those around you as well. The other thing that I think comes out in this is there's a big debate about this passage because they, they try to figure out, well, who's, whose idea was it? Was it God's or was it the people's? Because it, we don't get a moment where God says, yes, do this. We get Ezra saying, yeah, I, this is God's will, I think. 
He doesn't say, I think. He says, do what you think is, we think is in alignment with God's will. And so it is possible that this was just a solution that they had come up with on their own rather than allowing God to lead them in their steps, which is a warning to us not to get out ahead of God and try to solve our own problems. And the last thing I want to say that it, this does for us, it leaves us with a sense that the story of renewal is open-ended, that, that it's not done yet. Yeah, they go forward divorcing these women, sending them away, but when we look at the whole book of Ezra, we see the series of ups and downs, fits and starts, forward movement, backward movement. We don't see at the end of the book some sort of triumphant renewal as if they've arrived and they're perfectly the people of God now. We see a, a story that ends with a question, a question of what's going to happen next? How will their story go on? How will it end? And how will the leaders lead them? Because leadership matters. And renewal will only come about when the leaders lead it. And so I want to leave you with the thought that your leadership matters. Your influence matters. You may be thinking, oh, I'm not a leader, especially not a leader in the church. And I'm going to just push back on it and say, you are a leader. If you have influence on another human, you have leadership. If you have influence in someone's life, then you have the ability to lead them. And so you're a leader. If you're a parent, if you're a grandparent, you, uh, you can lead your sons and your daughters. You can even lead your parents. You can lead your sisters and your brothers. You can lead your friends. You can lead your caregivers. You can lead your care receivers. You can lead your teammates. You can lead your teachers. You can lead your students. You can lead your coworkers. You have influence, and if you're a follower of Jesus, your leadership matters in their relationship with God because as Peter said in our, our reading earlier, that as a follower of Jesus, you are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation in this whole line of the people of God made to represent him to the world that needs to know him. And your leadership matters. And you never know how far your leadership or your influence will go or be felt. Have you ever heard of Dwight, Dwight Moody? So, so Dwight Moody is a pretty famous Christian guy. Lived in the 1800s. He was devoted for many years to the work of, of the YMCA when the YMCA's primary focus was child evangelism. So he had started all these Sunday schools throughout the city of Chicago. And he went on from there, planting churches, preaching to actually, it, it said, over 100 million people in America and in Britain. And his influence was felt far and wide. But it, it goes on from there. His influence, at one point when he was in Britain, he preached chapel of a pastor named Frederick Meyer. And Meyer was so inspired by Moody's preaching that he became an evangelist as well. He would travel around to preach the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ. At that point, he travels to Massachusetts and he's preaching that there is only real life in Jesus Christ and is telling them, hey, if you are not willing to give up everything for Christ, then are you willing to be made willing? And he gets this, this invitation to some, and one responds, a guy named J. Wilbur Chapman. He was a young preacher at the time. He too becomes inspired to become an evangelist. And he goes out preaching. And one day, he's preaching in a revival. And there's a, a, a baseball player, a professional baseball player, who comes and hears him preaching. And he hears the good news of Jesus Christ. And, and he comes to faith. And so Billy Sunday, Billy Sunday becomes a preacher and an evangelist joining Chapman's team and eventually taking over that ministry. And 
through the work of Billy, Billy Sunday, a group of businessmen in Charlotte, North Carolina, were so inspired that they wanted to host a revival so that many more could hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And so they invited a, an evangelist named Mordecai Ham to come and preach over the series of nights. And so over the course of these nights, in 1932, a local farmer would bring a group of high school boys. And there was a 16-year-old boy among them, known to the farmers, to the friends and family as Billy Frank. And he would come night after night, and he was listening, and he was inspired, and he was captivated, and he was, he was convicted, even when he felt like, like Mordecai Ham was waving his finger at him. But ultimately, at the end of this series of nights, on the last night, Billy's, Billy Frank responds to the invitation to come forward, to give his life to Christ, who had given his life for Billy. Billy would go on to be known as Billy Graham, who you probably have heard of, who preached to maybe 2.2 billion people, is, it's thought, through, through his ministry. Many were influenced by Graham, but now let me go back. Have you ever heard of Samuel Horton or Edward Kimball? See, Horton was Dwight L. Moody's uncle. And Dwight L. Moody couldn't get a job, and so he goes to his uncle who owns a shoe store and says, hey, will you give me a job? And he says, fine, reluctantly. And he says, but on one condition, you're going to go to Sunday school and church every week. And so Moody starts going to church every week, where Edward Kimball was his Sunday school teacher. And one day, April 21, 1855, Kimball visits, visits Moody at the, at the shoe store, finds him in the back storeroom, puts his hand on his shoulder and begins weeping, over Moody, weeping about his sin, weeping about his life apart from Jesus and sharing the gospel and the hope of Jesus Christ with him. And ultimately, Moody comes to faith. I mean, think about how far the influence went from a very simple man. Edward Kimball showing up, reaches Dwight L. Moody. Dwight L. Moody inspires Frederick Meyer. Frederick Meyer inspires J. Wilbur Chapman. J. Wilbur Chapman reaches Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday inspires group of Charlotte businessmen who invite Mordecai Ham, who ultimately reaches Billy Graham with the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. You'd never know how far your influence will go. And so don't sell yourself short. Moody would famously go on and say that he wasn't all about the spectacle. He, he was in the event. He was actually wanted to see a whole army of biblically trained, normal people Go out with the good news of Jesus Christ. He said, if this world is going to be reached, I'm convinced that it must be done by men and women of average talent. And guess what? We're the men and women of average talent. You and me, with influence that matters, leadership that matters. How will you lead? Renewal in the lives of those around you may come down to how you lead. Renewal in your own family may come down to how you lead. So how will you use the influence God has given you? 